welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I'm your host, George Ray. Today, we will be talking about a specific type of renewable energy, biogas, and an important program for regulating it, the Renewable Fuel Standard Program, or RFS for short. We will hear from two people, Carlos Garcia and Joel Porter. Carlos is a federal policy manager at Bloom Energy and was recently involved in writing a comment that will be submitted to the EPA about leveraging renewable energy standards to better aid disenfranchised communities. The company he works for, Bloom Energy, manufactures and markets solid oxide fuel cells to be used for electricity. Joel is a policy manager for Clean Air NC, where he works closely with communities and advocates for energy systems that advance environmental justice aims. On today's episode, you might hear a little back and forth as Joel and Carlos parse the best way to incorporate disenfranchised communities into the changing energy schema. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little more about each of them. Carlos holds a leadership role in Bloom's environmental justice and equity efforts. He also leverages his energy policy experience within the public sector to advocate for a just energy transition within federal energy policy. Joel protects the public health of North Carolinians while advancing policies that mitigate air pollution and climate change in his role as policy manager. He also draws on his previous advocacy experience within government and NGO sectors to lead Clean Air's grassroots advocacy efforts. Joel and Carlos, thank you both for being with us today. Thank you, Gerda. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. So I want to start our listeners off with a little bit of background information. For those who don't know, what is an ERIN? So the RFS Renewable Fuel Standard was established by Congress as an amendment to the Clean Air Act of 2005 and mandates that U.S. transportation fuels contain a minimum biofuel volume. The ordered minimum volume increases annually and must be met using conventional biofuels, such as cornstarch or ethanol, and advanced biofuels like cellulosic ethanol. And to implement the RFS program, the EPA tracks the production and use of qualifying renewable fuels by using renewable identification numbers, or RINs. And for those energy-savvy listeners, you can think of a RIN much like a renewable energy credit, or a REC. And these RINs are generated by renewable fuel producers or importers and are bought and sold attached to the renewable fuel until the fuel is purchased by an obligated party such as a refiner or an importer of gasoline or diesel fuel. RINs can be bought and sold attached when blended with a petroleum-based transportation fuel. And at the point, the RIN is separated from the fuel and can be independently bought or sold until it's retired to meet an obligated party's renewable fuel obligation. And so for a renewable fuel to be applied towards the mandate, they must be used for specific purposes, like transportation or jet fuel or heating oil and meet specific environmental and biomass feedback criteria. And so the three major objectives of the RFS were, one, to provide a source of increased income and employment in rural areas, two, increase U.S. energy security, and three, to support the deployment of renewable fuels to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and displace petroleum. 
In 2014, there was an update to the RFS regulation, which allowed electricity produced from biogas and used as a transportation fuel to qualify for cellulosic rims. These biogas-derived electricity credits are here by forward described as E-RIMs. While established as a qualifying pathway, the EPA has yet to approve any registration requests for biogas to electricity even generation under the existing guidelines. And while point source and non-point source pollution vary from community to community, specific communities are burdened with a disproportionate number of facilities that fill the air, soil, and water with contaminants. Typically found in Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or BIPOC and LMI communities, residing near critical infrastructure sites, such as landfills, water resource recovery facilities, and livestock farms can negatively affect the well-being of residents. Recognizing the disparate siting and exposure of these point sources of pollution to BIPOC communities, we believe ERINs has the potential to provide some amount of relief to those front and fence line communities. Thank you, Carlos, for that description. I think that definitely helps get our listeners situated. And Joel, can you talk about some of the challenges associated with these livestock farms and the gases they produce? Yeah, so I, I think we'll we'll get deeper into this issue as our discussion continues. Uh, I would hypothesize anyway, but basically, as Carlos was mentioning, you have a lot of different sources of pollution in these BIPOC communities and rural low income communities, and the cumulative impacts of not just not just the agricultural emissions that, which, you know, you've got everything from sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, ammonia, you have all of, all of those pollutants. You also have pollutants from industry that all too often locates in BIPOC communities. And here in North Carolina, we are the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. And if you combine all of those different pollutants, you've got a serious problem. So we'll get in, I think, to the the gases associated with with farming and some more of those specific issues later. But that's kind of the, the gist of it. There are a lot of pollutants, a lot of smells, a lot of nasty stuff that seeps into water. There are air-related health issues that are are abundant in a lot of these communities. So it's generally a problem and one that is not being addressed in the right ways. And what would be those right ways to address this problem? From my perspective, our state, North Carolina, needs to, at the end of the day, change the way that they permit. That would be the biggest step that needs to happen is our state Department of Environmental Quality needs to start accounting for all of these sources of pollution as one and say, all right, we have this much pollution in this airshed or watershed. This area can't support any new sources of pollution. So whether that's a a farm trying to expand the number of hogs or cattle that they have, or a new pulp and paper mill that's coming into a community, or you know some steel manufacturing plant, whatever the case may be, the state eventually has to say enough. And right now, our state doesn't think that they have, they do, but they don't think they have that authority. 
really what it boils down to is the State Department of Environmental Quality is worried that the General Assembly will slash their budget if they say no to, to industry. So it's a problem, but that in my mind is the biggest step that we can we can take. That's on the state level. On the federal level, I think there are some things we can improve some things using uh, the rulemaking system and increasing monitoring, that those sorts of things. Uh, that'll help. Yeah. And Carlos, turning to you for a second, Bloom Energy has written comments that will be submitted to the EPA where you say this is a unique opportunity to reshape the renewable fuel standard program to address disproportionately high environmental burdens on disadvantaged communities. What are these burdens and why do you see this moment as a particularly important one? And if they accepted that recommendation, what would that entail for the industry and for consumers? Great question, Georgia. So we recognize that climate change does not affect all Americans equally. Climate change is a threat multiplier exacerbated by burdens, vulnerabilities, and stressors that differ among communities statewide and nationwide. Environmental justice is based on the principle that frontline communities are most vulnerable to climate change and therefore must play an integral role in planning for climate resiliency. These are communities where climate vulnerabilities intersect with historical patterns of environmental burdens that disproportionately affect low income communities and communities of color. And so to this end, the Biden administration has prioritized the importance of recognizing and addressing environmental justice with its formation of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, the White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council, the Office of Energy Justice uh, Policy and Analysis, and, and so much more. And as stated by President Biden, the federal government must drive assessment, disclosure, and mitigation of climate pollution and climate-related risks in every sector of our economy, marshalling the creativity, courage, and capital necessary to make our nation resilient in the face of this threat. Together, we must combat the climate crisis with bold, progressive action that combines the full capacity of the federal government with efforts from every corner of our nation, every level of government, and every sector of our economy. This is the first time in this nation has had such a strong federal attention to address climate change and support environmental justice. So we believe this represents a once in a lifetime opportunity to shift the RFS program to address the disproportionately high and adverse human health, environmental, and climate-related impacts felt by disadvantaged communities. And I wanna highlight the important roles that livestock farms, landfills, and water resource recovery facilities play in our communities. These are critical infrastructure sites and are vital to America's health and economy. Uh, you know, for example, by removing suspended solids and harmful toxic elements found in wastewater before it's discharged back into the environment, water resource recovery facilities are considered critical infrastructure for every community. The livestock sector, is a pillar of the global food system and contributes to poverty reduction, food security, uh, and agricultural development. And so to that end, we think there is a real merit in the expected benefits of providing an incentive to the RFS for those who prioritize the generation of clean electricity from qualified renewable fuels to charge EVs in disadvantaged communities. And I think if it's interest, I think one of the questions was, you know, how does this really uh, intersect with environmental justice in disadvantaged communities? And for those who don't know, disadvantaged communities, also known as DATs, 
can be defined as communities that bear burden of adverse public health effects, environmental pollution, uh, impacts of climate change, possess specific socioeconomic criteria, or comprise high concentrations of low and moderate income households. And so the integration of the disadvantaged community adder into the RFS structure aims to address three main environmental justice priorities. The disadvantaged communities prioritization in the U.S. energy and grid modernization efforts, which is what a just transition is. The need to address and promote clean energy infrastructure and alternatives. And three, decrease uh, the decrease and non-promotion of fugitive and criteria air pollutants in disadvantaged communities. Yeah, so a key word that just stood out for me in that, or a key phrase that stood out in that answer you just gave, Carlos, was the disadvantaged community adder. Can you talk a little bit more about this mechanism and how it will help frontline and fenceline communities? Absolutely. So again, you know, while point source and non-point source pollution vary from community to community, specific communities are burdened with a disproportionate number of facilities that fill the air, soil, and water with contaminants. So Residing near critical infrastructure sites, again, like landfills, water resource recovery facilities, and livestock farms, which are typically found in and around BIPOC and LMI communities, can negatively affect the well-being of residents. And so Americans all over the United States are suffering from odor pollution, decreased property value, uh, increased possibility for respiratory and skin disease, and significantly higher gastrointestinal symptoms, all because they live near or around these sites. And so recognizing the disparate siting and exposure of these point sources of pollution to BIPOC communities, we created the Disadvantaged Community Adder, which I'll refer to as the DCA going forward, to help prioritize emission reductions and EV uh, infrastructure development throughout the nation's disadvantaged community. So the DCA would equate to a 10% even bonus and would generate benefits for disadvantaged communities within the RFS program beyond what is possible with traditional regulation. And so this incentive is needed to create a just transition in our clean energy future and reduce the likelihood that the RFS projects and incentives continue to benefit wealthier communities disproportionately at the expense of disadvantaged communities. And so in order to qualify for a DCA, even producers must, one, be located within a disadvantaged community, two, generate electricity through non-combustion technology, and three, enter an agreement with an EV charging supplier located in another disadvantaged community. And with this, we believe the DCA would sufficiently motivate point sources of pollution to reduce the health and environmental risks posed by their facilities, as well as RFS energy generation. Joel, I know you work closely with communities in North Carolina. How have you seen the benefits and drawbacks of biofuels as a renewable fuel alternative? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. At the end of the day, we're, we're largely talking about programs that change the economics of certain pollutants, we're talking about commoditizing waste streams a lot of times, whether that's, you know, putting a, a biodigester on a farm to capture biogas or whether that's turning waste wood into pellets for that can then be turned into sustainable aviation fuel. All of that comes with some inherent problems and 
I'm not opposed to these technological solutions or commoditizing waste streams. I'd say I'm a skeptical optimist because it seems like every time you try to solve one problem, new problems emerge. But I think one example that we're dealing with in terms of a drawback when it comes to renewable fuels is greenwashing. So not to get too far into the weeds, but North Carolina has large amounts of forested land. We have tons of yellow pine. We have a lot of longleaf pine here. So very recently, Enviva, a large wood pellet producer, announced a partnership to create what they call uh, sustainable aviation fuels by turning wood pellets into jet fuel. Uh, This is a new development, so I don't know all of the details, but when this was announced, several publications made it sound like Enviva was just taking a bunch of sawdust, lumber scraps, you know, waste wood that when you hear people talk about good forest management, it's going through and picking up the the timber off the ground. it's, It's not like that. Enviva and wood the wood pellet industry at large clear cuts forests and they turn that timber into wood pellets. And it's actually very carbon intensive. So when you burn wood pellets, it's about twice, you put about twice the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as you would say coal. So you're losing that carbon sink by cutting down the trees in the first place. Then you're emitting VOCs, turning the trees into wood pellets. Then you're shipping it across the ocean because The UK largely uses wood pellets instead of coal now. And with the issues from Ukraine, they're having to burn a lot more wood pellets. And the the communities where these uh, wood pellet mills are, are largely in those very EJ communities that we're talking about. And this program to create sustainable aviation fuel was put in place by the Inflation Reduction Act, which is largely a climate measure. So you have the RFS, you have sustainable aviation fuels, you have uh, the EVRIN program. All of these come with, all of these programs are intended to solve a problem, but they're also creating other problems. When it comes to biogas and the, the way that, you know, Carlos is thinking about this is a little bit different than our organization has traditionally thought about how the farming industry in particular would be monetizing their waste streams. So in North Carolina, we have a huge hog industry. And I have to be real clear here. I don't think that biogas is a clean renewable resource. There are a lot, there's a lot of excitement right now in North Carolina about the prospect of turning waste, and you could use another word there that starts with an S and ends with a T, but turning turning waste into gold. So in, in that sense, they think they're, they're modern day alchemists. But, you know, I think if it's not done the right way, then you're just going to entrench a waste management process that has created some really serious problems in our state. And you're not really fixing the underlying issues. Yeah, I would love if you could get into those issues, but I'd love to give Carlos the floor for a second here to just, 
you mentioned, you know, the way you are conceptualizing these renewable energies or not renewable energies as you just categorize them is different from what Carlos and Bloom are doing. So Carlos, could you expand on how you see the differences? Thanks, George. And I actually also like to focus on something that Joel uh, mentioned, right, which is really talking about the decrease and non-promotion of fugitive and criteria air pollutants in disadvantaged communities. And we'll talk a little bit about the innovation of our technology and why we think it really is a positive technology outcome for these disadvantaged communities. But just to level set, two of the largest sources of methane emissions from human activities in the U.S. stem from livestock and waste management processes. So livestock management, including emissions teric fermentation and management of animal waste, accounts for the largest share of U.S. methane emissions from agricultural activities. So methane emissions from waste management uh, are dominated by the decomposition of solid waste in municipal and industrial landfills as well. And, and, and same thing goes for wastewater, where wastewater treatment, including domestic wastewater and industrial wastewater, is responsible for 14% of methane emissions from waste management. So exposure to waste facilities, landfills, and other pollutants are, of course, going to have adverse impacts on human health. And there are consistent indications, again, that these waste facilities are often disproportionately located in disadvantaged communities. And this applies to legal and, as Joel alluded to, maybe some illegal waste incinerators or management or landfills or hazardous waste sites. So through technologies like fuel cells, the opportunity to galvanize market participants to capture fugitive methane emissions and particulate matter from our noxious waste processes is enormous. And so creating an incentive to capture emissions and associated particulate matter from pollution point sources is the definition of a clean energy transition with a mind towards just transition. And we believe cities and municipalities should continue identifying innovative practices to support waste reduction, reuse and recycling. However, the rate at which the total generation of municipal solid waste in the United States is ever growing and is projected to grow even larger in the future. And so that's why we're proposing that creating a market incentive to minimize the effects of the U.S. waste process while implementing you know, best sustainability practices greatly outweighs any non-action alternative or even a business-as-usual approach. That makes sense that, that is, that's the goal you're shooting for. And if we can go back to Joel now and you can get into some of those problems that you're seeing, that would be great. Yeah, so... Carlos mentioned digesters, anaerobic digestion systems at wastewater plants, at municipal landfills and the like. And they're also using them in the agricultural sector as well. They're not perfect systems, but for you know municipal landfills and wastewater, it, they make a lot of sense. And they're, they're installing them the right way. But let's be, be clear, anaerobic digestion systems maximize the, the generation of methane. And right now, there isn't a robust monitoring program either at you know, municipal wastewater plants or at landfills or in the agricultural sector because methane is very hard to monitor. It requires very expensive equipment. So if there's leakage, we don't know about it. But one very large problem that we deal with is the ag sector. Our state has more hogs than people. In Duplin County, one of the, the state's largest counties, 
it's one of the largest hog producing counties in the United States and pigs out, outnumber people there 35 to one. Pigs are no longer farmed in the sense that, that we knew farming growing up. You know, I, I sing to my daughter, <laughs> uh, old McDonald, right? Thinking about this farmer who had a couple of pigs, some chickens, some cows, and it's it's not like that. It's pigs on top of one another. The term that we now use in North Carolina is is growers instead of farmers now. So they are industrial agricultural operations and they mass produce pigs. And the industrialization of, of hog farming has created a huge waste problem. In today's ag- industrial agricultural model, hundreds of hogs are kept on top of one another. They have very little room to roam. They end up defecating and urinating on top of one another. And there are huge fans that have to be installed in the pig houses now. Otherwise, the pigs would die from, the, from their own waste, from, from the, the emissions of their own waste. That's how bad it is. So, so to manage that waste, pigs defecate and urinate into slats on the floor and that is drained into cesspits that the industry calls lagoons. So since pits eventually fill up, the standard practice has historically been to spray that waste from the cesspit onto cropland as fertilizer. The, the process overall is called the lagoon and, and spray field process. And when crops are sprayed, we're not talking about dumping a little fertilizer on your backyard veggie garden. We're talking about as much as 200 gallons per minute of fecal matter and urine being sprayed through the air on crops. And let me tell you, when you drive down I-40 on the way from Raleigh to the beach, the smells take you through a bad day in chemistry class. You can pick up strong sense of ammonia, of sulfur. It's all hog waste. And that's just from the highway. So think about the neighbors and the people living in these communities who abut these these CAFOs. They're all low-income individuals, a lot of BIPOC communities, and they are breathing 200 gallons of hog excrement flying through the air. They're breathing that stuff. There are real-life health implications here, and these are communities where a chunk of the population is living at or below the national poverty level. So to biogas, industry and big ag thinks it's the solution to uh, the agricultural emissions that, that they, they emit. But again, it's, it's not exactly the best solution. So if you have technological improvements that make that process better, they need to be used. We need a best source a best type of emission standard. And I think, you know, what Carlos is trying to do here at least acknowledges the fact that there are communities that are adversely impacted. So it's a step in the right direction. And I think to echo and and add on to to what Joel is is really trying to convey here as well is that a lot of these communities have been bearing the brunt of the food and industrial sector and clean energy or clean or or waste sectors um, historically. 
And another part of this disadvantaged community adder, which aligns with the RFS's goal, is to address and promote clean energy infrastructure and alternatives. And a way that this is aiming to do that is really about electric vehicle adoption, right? Access to electric vehicles and EV charging infrastructure is an environmental justice issue. Apart from energizing non-combustion, clean energy technologies, right? The DCA would also help galvanize EV charging infrastructure and adoption within environmental justice communities. Numerous studies have highlighted that this, the disproportionate impact of climate change and pollution on low-income and BIPOC communities and people of color are 75% more likely than non-people of color to live near commercial facilities that produce noise, odor, traffic, or emissions that negatively affect the surrounding community. You know, non-Hispanic whites are exposed to 17% less air pollution than what they would uh, consume in uh, goods and services, while Blacks and Hispanics are exposed to 56% and 63% more than they consume, right? In, in New York City, right, the borough of the Bronx, asthma hospitalizations are five times the national average and 25 times higher than in other New York City neighborhoods due to the proximity of, of the four major highways. So EVs would undoubtedly improve health outcomes, but there are only 17 EV charging infrastructure for the borough's 1.4 million residents. Home EV charging systems are expensive and may not be an option for people with moderate to low incomes living in apartments or affordable housing. So also consider that nearly two-thirds of renters do not even have a garage or a carport. So, you know, the majority of EV stations are located in higher-end shopping areas, which may be difficult or inconvenient for LMI consumers to reach because of where they are in relation to their homes or the types of businesses that host them. So we must first shift the perception as well of EVs away from being a status symbol for eco-conscious affluent consumers and really understand that there's a way to help EV charging infrastructure and adoption in disadvantaged communities. And we think the DCA could significantly influence EV adoption and acceptance in disadvantaged communities. Carlos, I think that leads really well into my last question, which is what is the future of this industry and what improvements can we continue to make to best solve for the impact on disadvantaged communities? And great final question, George. I think what Joel mentioned in, in his previous comment, I think, is, is really spot on. I think this is the beginning of a really long and hard and complicated conversation. As Joel pointed out, and I, and I want to make sure and clarify as well, right? I, in, in my capacity, don't represent any one specific community, especially not any frontline or fenceline community. So I don't speak on their behalf. But in writing these comments and understanding the sector, I spoke with a lot of communities from Colorado to Florida to Ohio to New York to really understand what they're going through, some of the things that they have proposed as solutions, as well as talk to industry and understand, hey, what are the challenges and shortcomings, not only of the federal government to help you in sustainable management practices, but really in communicating with the communities that you live in and around and that may be experiencing any effects from your operations. And so I think in that light and in the spirit, that's what the disadvantaged community adder is. It's really the first attempt and the first successful outcome to marry environmental justice, community, climate justice movement priorities with technology that industry is adopting and really embracing with open arms. And so I think 
going forward, what the future might look like, hopefully, is a stronger sense of collaboration, a stronger sense of wanting to listen and understand the opposing stakeholders' perspective and concerns and priorities, while at the same time being open to different avenues of success and different avenues of possibilities for collaboration. Because I think as we're, you know, Joel has pointed out, this is a very messy process with a lot of variables. And so to expect any one technology or one community or one company to have all the answers to fix all of the sector's problems, it's really tough. And most of the time we get nowhere, but coming to the table with an open mind, with open ears, and really with an open heart of intention and of trust, I think would be a really great step forward in this really complicated and historically very contentious sector and topic. Yeah, so I agree that I, I think, you know, you're not going to have just one technology type solve all of the problems. On the In the same vein, you can't have one policy mechanism that solves all of the problems. Here in North Carolina, you've you've got the state who's recently issued a general permit for biodigestion systems. And, you know, they've basically said anybody who wants to put a tarp over a cesspit can go ahead and do so and start piping methane places. That isn't the best solution either. So, you know, if, if that's going to be the case and you're going to have these digesters that basically entrench the spray field system, you've, you've got to have a solution for the spray, field, the spray field system as well. You can't just say, all right, put on these digesters, but you can still spray manure all over the place. You have to either permit things differently and say, no, you can't do that. Or if you're going to do that, you have to do it under very specific guidelines. Or you have to have better solution for the problem. And you have to monitor for it. So if we're going to address climate change and we're going to say, yeah, these are our this is a problem that we're going to create new programs for. We have to know that those programs are working the way that they're intended. So, you know, a lot of the, the farms that install digesters or, you know, if you have a landfill and you're piping that gas off to market, you should be sure that you're not leaking it along the way. And research from the UK and Notre Dame suggests that methane leakage from the systems themselves and from the transmission distribution systems is significant. And, you know, I, if you wouldn't mind, I think I've sent you the studies. I'll let you post those in the show notes. But you've got lobbying interests like the American Farm Bureau, who back in September was pushing the Senate EPW committee to limit monitoring. So, you know, in fact, they passed a bill banning the EPA from regulating gases from the ag sector. There are still some problems and issues that we need new policies for. We need to 
push back a bit more against industry and say, listen, if you if you want to make money off of these processes, off of fighting climate change, that's great, but you have to play ball and and you know show your work and not actually pollute the environment and protect communities that you're working in and stop putting hog filth all over your neighbors. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think, I think in terms of where the industry, what the future of this industry is, I think it's coming because there are subsidies for uh, a lot of these technologies for whether it's adding a, an electrolyzer to a biodigestion system or using Carlos's other technologies to turn biogas directly into electricity, you clearly have the economic mechanisms that are in place that ensure the propagation of these technological advancements. But how can we continue to best solve for their impacts? I think that needs a lot more thought. And for those willing to give it more thought, I said that was my final question, but my true final question is where can people go to learn more? Yeah, so to learn more about Bloom's non-combustion technology, I would invite listeners to visit bloomenergy.com. And there we have a great library of one-pagers, white papers, and presentations that really dive into the amazing technology that Bloom has to offer in the different sectors that we work in. To learn more about our even comments and to possibly sign on as a supporter, please feel free to email me or check the EPA's registry 30 to 60 days after November 16th when the comments will be submitted to the EPA's notice of proposed rulemaking for EREDS. Yeah, and from our end, you can uh, visit our website, cleanairnc.org. And that's C-L-E-A-N-A-I-R-E-N-C.org. And I'd also... There's a great documentary that is making the rounds right now called The Smell of Money. It's all about the North Carolina swine industry. Thank you both so much for being here and tackling this complicated topic. It was really interesting to hear both of your different perspectives on it. And I think it led to a really fruitful discussion. So thank you both. Thank you, Georgia. And thank you, Joel. Yeah, thank you, Carlos, Georgia. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.